Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In the first episode of 2020, Mike is joined by Tom Carrico, Senior Fellow at the CSIS International Security Program and Director of the Missile Defense Project. Mike and Tom tackle the new hard power reality facing the Asia chessboard. What will the Indo-Pacific region look like now that the U.S. is no longer bound by the INF Treaty? After examining the present balance of missile forces in Asia, Mike and Tom examine the doctrinal, strategic, and political realities of deploying intermediate-range missiles in Asia. Mike and Tom conclude by examining how pressure generated by American intermediate-range missiles in Asia may lead to a new generation of arms control agreements. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green, and I'm joined today by my friend and colleague Tom Carrico uh, from CSIS, Senior Fellow in the Security Program, uh, Director of CSIS's Project on Missile Defense, and a Kenyan College professor, my uh, alma mater, among other things. So, as always, uh, Tom, welcome. Good to be here. We try to let people listening in understand how we got here and uh, what you know experiences we bring, but also maybe a little bit of a hint for how they can think about their careers if they're still in school. Tell us how you got to CSS. What did you yeah. study? What got you into missile defense? So I was a, I was a liberal arts major in college at the University of Dallas. Went out to grad school in uh, at Claremont Graduate uh, University and was always interested in national security. Uh, so studying kind of political theory and American politics, but always interested in national security. And somewhere along the way, I got. Uh, especially focused on kind of uh, missile strike, missile defense, and that kind of stuff, and just stuck with it. And so went from kind of being a, an academic, uh, writing about these things, to working on Capitol Hill, and then kind of bounced back and forth, but ended up here at CSIS about five years ago, and have uh, just kind of made the, a career out of that. What kind of work are you doing at the Missile Defense Project? Yeah. So we kind of cover all aspects of missile defense, from programs and budgets policy strategy, you know, how does this make sense? How does it fit in with the overall U.S. force posture, but also those of our allies? Uh, And there's just a whole lot to track there. So air defense, missile defense, but then also a lot of strike. And as it turns out, and we'll kind of get to that in in a bit here, there's just a kind of a high demand signal, uh, an increasing demand signal, I would say, for kind of missile-based delivery systems uh, of various kinds. And there's geopolitical reasons for that, uh, but also kind of uh, technical ones. Some of the key turning points in American strategy towards the uh, Asia-Pacific region have come because of missiles and nuclear weapons. Eisenhower, in the 50s with a new look, wanted to avoid entangling ground wars in Asia and hope nuclear weapons would do it for him. Didn't work. We ended up in (laughs) Vietnam. Uh, Reagan helped to wind down the Cold War in large part in the Pacific because he deployed dual-use capable F-16s. Uh, the Air Force did in Misao in Japan. So Japan was now a target for the Soviets' nuclear forces and implicated uh, in a way it couldn't escape in U.S. global strategy. So the Soviets now had a two-front problem, um, no way around it. So at various points in history, how we have addressed nuclear weapons, missile defense, strike, have been really critical to the larger Asia chessboard for U.S. policymakers and allies. And that's what we want to get into. And the, the issue we're looking at now, most topically, is the U.S. withdrawal from the INF treaties. Tell us a bit about that. Why did we withdraw? It was not really about Asia, or was it? Uh, kind of yes and no. You know, of course, the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty from 1987. Uh, you mentioned Reagan and deploying F-16s in Japan, but uh, kind of really with the late Carter administration and Reagan administration, uh, the Soviet Union and uh, the United States were deploying uh, intermediate range missiles in Europe. 
And the 1987 treaty kind of eliminated that whole category of ballistic and cruise missiles, everything from 500 to 5,500 kilometers in range. And it kind of took them off the, the table. And the reason was these kind of fast flyers, as they were known, uh, on such short distances were, were seen as, as destabilizing. That, you know, the, the, for the flight times from Moscow to, to Germany were just very, very short. And kind of getting everything off the table allowed things to have a little more breathing room in terms of time and space. And so uh, that treaty lasted, uh, you know, a good long time, but kind of beginning in the and really in the Bush administration. Russia began signaling in different ways that they're surrounded by countries that have intermediate range missiles and they don't have them themselves. And that kind of concerned them. And as it turned out, they started uh, testing and deploying some of these things probably the late 2000s. And the United States, the Obama administration called them on it finally publicly uh, in 2014. And then the Trump administration, a full five years after that, pulled out formally pursuant to the, the treaty's terms. And so now what we're looking at is both Russia that has some of this stuff already and the United States is developing some of it. And the big question is, OK, we have we've had this big gap in terms of uh, delivery systems from 500 to 5,500. And uh, what makes sense in terms of filling that gap? And you're talking about kilometers range. Right. <coughs> with those numbers. Me. Yeah. So what is the missile balance right now? Remember in the 60s, there's this, well, you weren't around probably. The missile gap. Big missile gap. Yeah, what yeah, is yeah. the missile balance in Asia right now between the U.S. and its allies yeah. on the one hand and, say, for example, China? Yeah, it was Kennedy who played the, the missile gap right. card against Eisenhower. So the, the missile gap, as it were, uh, for the Asia-Pacific uh, region in particular is pretty lopsided. Because the other big country uh, in the world that, that wasn't bound by the INF Treaty uh, was, of course, China. And so China has various defense goals for the region especially, and I think it's something like 85% of their missile forces are within this this range. Well, it doesn't really need to be all that long range to hit uh, targets in Japan or, or some of their other neighbors. And so in terms of the balance, in terms of numbers, it's pretty lopsided. Now, that's not to say, however, that the U.S. and its allies don't have some pretty important strike capabilities, but back to the, the manned versus unmanned, we've got you know, more capable uh, manned aircraft. Some of our other allies do. You know, the other thing that happened in 1987 was the uh, another kind of non-treaty, non, non-binding uh, agreement called the Missile Technology Control Regime, the MTCR. And it kind of limited the transfer of missile technology of anything really over 300 kilometers in range. I mention that because over the years, as the United States has kind of led the non-proliferation effort on missile technology, China's pushed back and said, hey, you're, you're developing, you're selling manned aircraft, F-16s and what have you, to the folks around us. What's the difference in capability between a manned aircraft and a missile? Why are you limiting one and not the other? And so here we are, is we kind of taken away the INF restrictions, and there's kind of had this, uh, this proliferation, not just among adversaries, but among friends and allies, uh, of getting more and more, some manned, but, but lots of unmanned missile capabilities in the, in, in the region. So the withdrawal from the INF Treaty creates now the legal possibility for a menu of capabilities for the U.S. and and perhaps allies like Japan. So there's the question of what operationally you would want in a high-end war fighting scenario or for deterrence. So there's a question of what you would want operationally if you were the Pentagon or the Indo-PACOM commander to fight a high-end war against an adversary Mm -hmm. uh, who has a lot of missiles. But then there's a question of what you can afford because we don't have most of these missiles with this range because we were constrained by the treaty. So what can you afford? And this is a question of what can you base and what can you deploy? Politically very complicated. And we, we should get into those. But let's start with uh, 
sort of ideal operational world, what kind of capabilities could we now develop that would have utility for deterrence? Uh, in a post-INF age. Right. You know, I neglected earlier in describing the INF Treaty uh, to say that it really only limited ground-based systems. Of course, sea-based missiles of any range have in principle always been permitted. Likewise, air-launched missiles of any uh, of any range have always been permitted. And so really what this class is, is ground-based missiles. Now, having said that, you know, the, the flip side of putting a, or stuffing a bunch of cruise missiles into an aircraft uh, or stuffing them into to launch tubes on a ship is that at that point, an adversary can target the platform, right? right? And you, hit, you hit the archer rather than the arrows kind of thing, and you take out everything aboard. And so what this really kind of comes down to, saying with the operational side, is how can you complicate the surveillance and targeting job for whoever it is your adversary, let's just say China, uh, by spreading things out, right? So instead of taking out a handful of bombers or a handful of ships, which they're China certainly is is prioritizing. You know, can you spread these things out on land and complicate the surveillance and targeting job form? So that I think is the primary potential utility of this stuff. If you had a bunch of ground-based missiles, for instance, you wouldn't st- put them all in one place and put them in concrete. The real operational utility is putting them, making them mobile, mm-hmm. and hiding their location. That way, from a deterrence perspective. They don't know where to target them, and they don't know exactly where they're coming from. And so, therefore, they know that if something breaks out, that they'll have X number of, of fires coming their way. And so, it complicates things a bit. And what would these assets, these these missiles, and now because of the treaty, potentially ground-based missiles, what would they put at risk that would deter an adversary? Is it what some people call deterrence by denial? They try to, they let's use China as an example, try to send uh, forces to take Taiwan or the East China Sea. Um, deterrence by denial, we can take them out. We'll have enough missiles to do it, enough cruise missiles, and therefore it's not worth it. Or is this more punitive deterrence by punishment, the deep strike, the ability to hit them? In a way, they can now range easily with their missiles, uh, Japan, Taiwan, mm-hmm. uh, Guam, yeah. Uh, is it sort of all of the, uh, just talking operationally, I think the politics are very different, whether you're talking deterrence by denial in the maritime domain or politics by punishment, which is holding assets at risk deep inside a, an adversary. Politically very different, but operationally, what's the mix that would, would be on the table? Right. So I think it's, first of all, it's important to table that, that everybody's talking about only about conventionally armed missiles. Right. So that's, that's important to kind of get out there in terms of ground basing, right? Now, the United States has various nuclear forces, uh, sea-based and otherwise, uh, but this would probably be conventional, and it's going to be kind of it's going to be precision strike, and so you, you know these things have multi multi mission. They can be retargeted at various things. They're, the job is to be flexible, but you, one can imagine, especially let's just say coastal defenses or or air defenses that might thwart and complicate Chinese aggression against their neighbors and that kind of thing. You know, potentially if you put a anti ship killer seeker on it, you know, ground based missiles going after other ships. Uh, is certainly plausible too. So I, I think it's I think it's a variety of things mm-hmm. hitting their uh, their ships and other air, air targets. But you know, Ch- China is also creating some depth for themselves with all these islands, and they're putting air defenses on those islands and other other assets, other things. And so one can imagine that in a conflict, um, those might become targets too. So the politics then get complicated. Uh, let's go to the budget. You know, we have some uh, uh, serious uh, challenges with the DOD budget, as you know well, from unfunded mandates for personnel, uh, just the cost of sustaining the force and so on. 
Is this uh, where we should be spending our money? Actually, I think it is. Um, I think this is a fairly cost-effective investment by the it. Let me kind of define that as, again, your ground-based fires uh, longer than 500 kilometers. And I, I say that not just about the Asia, but kind of globally. A couple years back, we kind of looked at the, the, I think Ben Hodges, who was the head of US Europe at the time, and, and looked around and said, look, the, the Russians got a lot of rockets, they got a lot of missiles, and we just don't. You know, the U.S. had just kind of divested itself, especially the U.S. Army, uh, of a lot of this capability. And so what you've seen over the past couple of years, especially just sticking with the Army for a minute, uh, a lot of investment in what the Army calls long-range precision fires. They're getting a longer-range howitzer. Their artillery look more like rockets. They're getting rockets that longer-range look like missiles and missiles with with greater range. Why? Because we want to stand off. We don't want to have to be on top of an adversary before we can hit them with these fires. Which, which is a challenge in the Western Pacific, where we operated with impunity for most of the post-war period, but now because of the so-called A2AD, anti-access area denial capabilities China's developed over the last two decades, they can hit a lot of stuff in the first and second island chain in the East China Sea and the South China Sea. So it's a much, just to foot stamp your point, it's a much tougher environment to put a carrier battle group uh, into or even to um, flow in uh, tactical air. Right, no, absolutely. Because they can reach out and hit so First much. Of all, so you the, need longer range so you can stand off. The, the tyranny of distance in the Asia Pacific certainly applies there. And so the the kind of the, the underinvestment for, you might say, the Europe-type mm -hmm. uh, scenario has had double effects uh, over here uh, because you got to cross a lot of water before you get to your target. So I, so absolutely there's that. But, but, but that's the Army's number one modernization priority is long-range fires. And that, I think, is exactly right. Uh, because we have to, to restore that. And so then the question, back to the, the question on the table, is what is the relative utility of ground-based fires relative to sea and, and air? Because folks, the Air Force come back and say, well, we, we do it all with F-35. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, but in terms of cost, human beings live on the land, and <laughs> turns out you can have more stuff on the land, and it's cheaper to operate and maintain than a really expensive naval platform or a really expensive air, air platform, as it turns out. And so there's, there's utility in terms of cost and budget to finding a cheaper way to have ordnance that is ground-based as opposed to uh, these more exquisite and, and expensive platforms. So in the Western Pacific, the Army has had that profile on the Korean Peninsula. It's not really had it on Japan. This would be a brave new world for the U.S.-Japan alliance uh, and potentially for other allies. Uh, the Philippines, much more complicated politically. Taiwan, who knows? But uh, the Army's not had that profile uh, of reaching out and touching the way it has in NATO. It raises the question, how do you, are we looking at a more army-centric U.S.-Japan alliance potentially? Are we, I mean, where else are you going to put them if not Japan? Yeah. Well, I, first of all, I'd like to point out that we, well, we always look at the the quote-unquote INF range missiles of our, of our adversaries, of North Korea, China, that kind of thing, we, we don't pay as much attention to the fact that, that Taiwan, for instance, and South Korea, they've been getting some missiles of their own. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, there's utility to that. And I think it's important to see that there's, there's other things going on. Our friends are investing in this kind of capability and for a good reason. So I guess on the Japan basing thing, um, I, I see a lot of merit there. And I see merit in the long term if handled properly and uh, and with a lot of uh, close consultation with uh, with our Japanese allies, that this could really be a, a new foundation for U.S.-Japan uh, uh, defense relations uh, rather than a, a distraction. Hopefully, it, it, will, it will be a strengthening rather than a, than a weakening. And I would frame it in this sense as well, that if we can find a way to strengthen the, the overall defense posture of our, our two countries relative to our common adversaries, 
uh, using conventional strike, you know, that's what we're supposed to be doing in terms of not just relying on nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence. So I see their value of having greater conventional deterrence uh, rather than just falling back on the nuclear side. You know, it's interesting, the, um, the Japanese government in its last defense plan opened uh, an, an active examination of what they call standoff weapons, this kind of capability. Short, uh, implicitly, it was short of INF ranges, but now potentially one could argue longer. Japan's not a party to the treaty, but, but this is a capability the Japanese government is actively looking at. Uh, they call it standoff weapons. That decision by the Japanese government caused much less uproar than the U.S. withdrawal from the INF Treaty. It was very interesting. It leads me to think that perhaps uh, the most likely path forward to a standoff capability in Japan will not be the U.S. Army. It's going to be the Japan Self-Defense Forces. Hmm. Politically, I would argue, uh, an easier sell in Japan. That raises the question then, and I think that deterrence capability is good for us, for the United States. But it raises the question, um, the U.S.-Japan alliance, uh, the division of roles, missions, and capabilities historically has been one in which the U.S. is the spear and Japan's a shield. But now Japan's going to have a spear. So uh, we have not had a joint and combined command with Japan like we have with Korea. And to me, the only way we make this work is to start moving towards something much closer to a joint and combined command so that neither side shoots without some concept of operations, some joint shared intel, some joint decision-making process. And then, you know, maybe the Army develops these, but they're deployable. Japan has a capability, and down the road, if things get hot, we have a joint concept of operations, and, and we can deploy, yeah, maybe and, with long ranges. Is that sort of a scenario that seems reason you know, realistic I, to you? I, look, you know the politics uh, better than anybody, but but if you had a situation where Japan is pursuing that kind of counterattack, standoff capability, um, such that that is, you might say, uh, kosher uh, for domestic politics, I, I would hope that there would nonetheless be at least the planning such that if you needed to, to move things in uh, that are non-Japan, because there's going to be limits on their budget, right? Right. And so uh, we're stronger together, you know, in terms of this stuff. And so having the, at least the prospect for the mass that the U.S. can bring to bear, um, that just seems like a really important thing to, to build in. Right. And we should emphasize that neither of us is in the U.S., let alone the Japanese government. The two governments are just beginning to sort of conceptually consider what this means. So our discussion, I think, is actually further ahead of where the official dialogue is. But since we're not in the government, we can do that. Right. And think about the ups and downside to each approach. People talk about the downsides a bit. Uh, one concern is um, uh, how do you control escalation? Hey, look, these missiles are going to be dual-use capable. Even if we say they're not nuclear, they're going to be dual-use capable. Um, so how do you avoid a dangerous escalation where the adversary doesn't know whether your fires are nuclear or conventional? Mm. You, you know, that particular problem is posed, you know, in, in, in theory, in principle, uh, the United States has been firing tomahawks and uh, conventionally, uh, conventional outcomes, conventional air launch cruise missiles uh, over the years. Uh, and whether it's uh, Bosnia or Iraq or wherever, and we've yet to have somebody think that one of those was carrying a nuclear weapon. It's going to be context. Obviously, mm -hmm. it's going to be in the context and that kind of thing. Um, but I think Congress, I think it was a couple years ago, I'm not sure the exact status right now, but but at some point Congress said, you know, we need to be looking into conventional variants of things like LRSO and that kind of thing. You have to, Bottom line, you have to explain what that is. Yeah, long-range <laughs> standoff weapon, uh, which is basically the replacement for this very old 1980s nuclear cruise missile. But, but look, it comes down to what are you trying to do, right? You're trying 
trying to have a delivery system that can reach such and such a, a range, such and such targets, uh, it makes good sense to have conventional variants of that. Uh, so I, I don't uh, I don't put just all that much uh, worry uh, just because a cruise missile or, or frankly a B fifty two. Look, B fifty twos can carry nuclear weapons. Yeah. Right. So this this whole uh, thing I think tends to be a little bit of a canard and over overblown a little bit. The other critique you sometimes hear is we, we you know we've been shooting tomahawks at countries that can't afford to win a missile race with us. The Chinese uh, can build a lot of missiles. And so what, what do you say to that? Maybe you can address the larger context. I mean, this is one capability, one asset. I assume there's a broader web of things you'd want to complicate in adversaries planning, AI, cyber, whatever. But in terms of just mass, we're talking about an adversary potentially in China that can afford a lot of stuff. Yeah, no, that's important because some folks, sometimes you can look at a single capability in a stovepipe rather than seeing how it all fits together. And so whether it's ground-based fires or what have you, it's, it's all going to come down to how does this uh, fit into a joint, you know, multi-domain kind of approach to this stuff. And so it's how does this support the U.S. or Japanese F-35 operations and vice versa. So, of course, it has to be uh, a combination of all that. And I would, I would put in there as well uh, UAVs. Right, mm-hmm. you saw the the Chinese deploy a very cool uh, drone show at the Olympics, things like that. That's you know really I think the tip of the spear for mass, uh, and you see a lot of interest in, and I'm really interested in this uh, decoys. Yeah, you know decoys, whether it's decoy drones, decoys that look like aircraft. Uh, again, trying to find different ways to complicate their surveillance and targeting. But the other way to deal with mass is look for the uh, the critical nodes to kill them because those drones have to talk to some ground station, mm-hmm. right? And they're only so good as, presumably, only so good as uh, as they can survive electromagnetic jamming uh, of, of various kinds, or we can somehow interfere with, with their own targeting and communications as well. So, so those are the capabilities, not INF missiles, uh, but those are the other capabilities that obviously has to be brought all together. So the kind of standoff weapons the U.S. would be able to deploy now, post-INF treaty, the kind of... Um, for now, at least shorter range standoff weapons that Japan, for example, is looking at, it is one piece of a network of capabilities that gives you more fl- more options, more survivability, more flexibility, and just generally complicates uh, an adversary's planning and deters them because they don't can't be sure they can win. People always talk about the 1980s and the INF uh, treaty in 87, but also the deployment of Pershings and and those capabilities, very controversial, you know, huge protests. Uh, we now know funded in large part by the KGB, right. uh, but also spontaneous in Western Europe. Um, handled badly, this could lead to the kind of protests and backlashes. Uh, you know, we have hard time in Japan uh, managing bases sometimes, especially in Okinawa. So there's some risk politically of, of a backlash against the alliance if not handled well. But the lesson from the 80s is there's an upside because it seems to me that, not seems to me, it's a historical fact, the U.S. alliance with NATO we rode that wave. We came out stronger. And as you know, the INF treaty was supposed to move the SS-20s, the Soviet stuff, over the Ural Mountains and then Nakasone in Japan said to Reagan, whoa, 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 not in our backyard, thank you very much. So the result was that NATO and the US-Japan alliance um, and in the G7 Western leaders for the first time were talking with one voice about how to contain the Soviet Union and deal with this problem. I mentioned that because diplomatically and in terms of the geopolitics, there's some downside risk to playing this wrong and showing lack of solidarity, but played right, this shows a real solidarity, and it seems to me it could link NATO and Japan uh, around some of these problems, and Australia and other allies. How do, you, how do you see the geopolitics of this one? Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's critical, and it's, it's why it's so, one reason why it's so important to really keep the focus and our no kidding planning 
on conventional versus nuclear. Because you raised the Jolly Roger on a, a nuclear deployment, and then you have the nuclear freeze movement that you were alluding to in Europe. And the Trump administration, to its credit, took its time for the deployment, and it did consult with, you know, the Merkels of the world and other mm-hmm. folks and says, allowed them the time to explain to their publics Mm -hmm. that this wasn't about bringing back nuclear weapons to Europe or otherwise. And so staying on that message is going to be important. And so I I really hesitated to go down the the dual capability kind of thing. I said, we need need to say what we mean and mean what we say in terms of conventionally armed. We've got nuclear weapons and subs and other things. We probably don't need to put them on land. And so I think there's utility to having ground-based fires that are just conventional. And so let's let's do what we say there. And I think that allows us to avoid that fight because I'll tell you what, it, that as, as you know, the in the 1980s, that could have gone a different direction. And are we better or worse at managing that kind of uh, three-dimensional diplomacy right now? I wouldn't run, want to run that risk. And so try, opening up a fight, opening up a, a Pandora's box that we don't know where to lead, probably be a bad idea. Let me end by asking about arms control. Because sometimes uh, commentators who support withdrawal from the INF say it was the deployment of these capabilities in Western Europe that was such a challenge for the Soviets. They they had no choice. They came in and they negotiated uh, this treaty. Uh, we deployed them to counter the Soviets' overwhelming conventional capability, which was growing. But, of course, we're talking 1987. Gorbachev was in power. The Soviets were running out of money. Um, if we look at the China example... Xi Jinping is not Gorbachev. In fact, he gives speeches condemning Gorbachev's choices. And China's got a lot of money. On the other hand, China wasn't in the INF Treaty. They're getting a free pass. So is there a scenario, maybe not right away, but down the road where this gets us into some arms control talks with the Chinese we've not been able to do? Uh, Possibly. But I think folks really get ahead of themselves and actually uh, undercut that goal by putting the cart before the horse and running t- right towards the arms control agreement is kind of a, a security blank because that's what you know. Right. And so, as you said, you didn't get INF until you had deployments for a number of years. And so before we can even get to that – and by the way, I don't even know if we are sure of exactly what is the thing that one would want to arms control, right? Mm-hmm. Is it just INF missiles? Is it UAVs? Is it something else? I think we have to totally reset the table. Uh, the context, the technological and geopolitical context is very different now. And I don't think we know exactly what are the objects of such a potential arms control agreement. It may be very different. It probably would be different. We haven't used the word hypersonic mm-hmm. uh, missile uh, in this conversation yet. In principle, a hypersonic uh, maneuverable glide vehicle wasn't uh, covered under the INF Treaty because it was neither ballistic nor uh, nor cruise. And so, you know, do you go after a- any kind of missile that, whose delivery system can maneuver? Well, that's kind of all of them. So I think we have to, we may have to spend a little bit of time in the wilderness in terms of arms control. We're kind of getting there already as these things go away and aren't necessarily replaced. But I think whether it's either in terms of trilateralizing the new start or whether it's something like this, we need to reset the overall table and we need to be in a position of strength relative to China before we can get them to negotiate about just about anything. Tom Carco, this is a complicated issue technically, uh, operationally, uh, geopolitically and diplomatically, legally. You've helped make it a little cleaner and easier to understand. And I also think you've made us appreciate that this is the beginning of a very long chapter. Um, It's going to have a big impact on the Asia chessboard, on our strategy. We don't know what yet, uh, but we know we have some decisions to make. You made it a lot clearer for us. So thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening. 
For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.